1 Thessalonians, we're going to go back to this little letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica. We left off in chapter number 2, and we'll pick up there the middle part of chapter number 2 from last week. 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse number 10, and we'll take as our text and our reading tonight from verse 10 down through verse number 20. So find 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And verse number 10. 1 Thessalonians 2.10 says, Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. As ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children, that she would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it, were, as it is in truth the word of God, which effect, effectually worketh also in you that believe. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus, For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they please not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins all way, for wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, Endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. Lord, would you be pleased tonight with our time? Around your word, I pray that we would come with hungry hearts. I pray that we would come with open hearts and that we would truly desire not only to see and understand what you have preserved for us, but also to make application, to apply what we see and what we understand tonight. Help me, Lord, to to preach in the way that would be acceptable and pleasing unto you in a way that you can use to affect and challenge and change hearts and lives here tonight. And ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, if you'll go back all the way to the beginning, the book of Genesis, you'll remember that even before the fall, even before sin, God had designed the first family. He created male and female, husband and wife, father and mother. The family is God's design. And no matter how much society may want to challenge that or question that design, God actually has a purpose in what he was doing. And God designed men and women, males and females, to be able to fill those roles in the family in unique and very special ways. And God designed it that way. It's a beautiful creation where each Each uh, um, individual has a a function and a role to play, and God designed you in order to be satisfied in fulfilling that function. It's a beautiful design. Here in 1 Thessalonians, in the first two chapters, Paul is going over, he's rehearsing um, the process of evangelism and discipleship there in the city of Thessalonica. He is... uh, uh, prodding their memories to go back. And it wasn't that long ago. It was about a year and a half after the events actually took place. But Paul's reminding them, you remember how I came? Remember how I preached to you? Remember how we invested in your lives? Paul and Silas and Timothy, how they had come there and saw them saved and then built up in, in the short time that they were there, just probably just a few months. Uh, and then, of course, they were forced to move on. But those believers continued on and a church was planted in that city. And as Paul describes this unique relationship with the Thessalonians, he uses, going back to the design of the family, he uses the unique picture of a mother 
and a father to describe the spiritual reproduction process, to describe what his goal was and what he was able to accomplish in the city of Thessalonica. Last week we looked at verse number 7, and Paul describes how he dealt with those believers, how he cared for those believers as a nurse who cherishes her child, as a, as a mother, a nursing mom, mother, is gentle towards her children. And he describes his relationship with the believers in that way and how he saw them come to Christ. And as babes in Christ, he, he loved them, he nurtured them, he cherished them, he was gentle with them like a, a nurse was with, uh, a nursing mom is, I should say, with her children. But then in verse 11, and I don't know if you picked up on it, but it's a little bit different. Now he comes at it not from the mother relationship, but from the father relationship. And he mentions in verse 11 how he exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. So he's using both of those unique relationships. And we understand, and of course it makes perfect sense tonight, uh, with God's design that there is a role for a mother and there's a role for a father. We're not here to talk about family matters, uh, but that is a reality. That is the way God designed it. And Paul is, is, is drawing on that picture and how he f- was able to, with God's help, to fulfill those roles. Specifically now, he's going to talk about discipleship and how he uh, discipled these believers in verse 10, it makes it pretty clear. He, says, he describes how he behaved himself among them, those, those that believed. All right, So these were believers. These were Christians. And, and Paul was conducting himself in a way as to disciple them, to see them go on and serve the Lord Jesus Christ for themselves. And so I've entitled the, the message tonight, Fathers and Followers. And I wasn't sure if that was quite uh, the, the right title. So, you know, all the rage is, is this uh, chat GPT and AI. So I went to the AI and said, what are some creative titles? And so if you prefer their title, Dad Discipleship Dynamics. I kind of like that. But, um, you know, you can choose whichever one you like. And I won't be offended if you don't choose my title. All right. Fathers and followers. Fathers and followers. There's a pattern of fatherly discipleship that we see here. And I'll spoil it a little bit tonight. Do a little spoiler alert. In the fact that each one of us should be endeavoring in our relationship as a believer within this church to be both a father and a follower. Really, we ought to be involved in both. And we'll see that as we go along. But we see a pattern of fatherly discipleship here. And there's three different ways in which I see that. First, in the first couple of verses, verse 10 through 12, we see some particulars regarding discipleship, some particulars of discipleship. And what I mean by that is in verse 10, Paul begins talking about the fact that there is a lifestyle requirement to being a discipler, to being a, a father in order to bring people along in the faith. There's a requirement upon our lives and upon our lifestyles. He says in verse 10, Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holy and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believed. And what we're talking about here is the lifestyle in which we live. It's the idea that what people see is, is just as important, if not more important, than what people hear. You probably heard it put this way, what is caught is a whole lot more meaningful than what is taught. And if we're going to, to be a father, if we're going to affect people in, in, for Christ the way, the way God would want us to, it's not, only going to, it's not just going to be our words that need to be a certain thing. It's going to be the way that we live. In fact, the way that we live is more important than the words that we say. And, you know, in some ways, this kind of takes some of the pressure off because some people are like, you know, so I just don't know what to say. I, I, you know, putting me in front of someone, I kind of struggle with all the words. And I understand that. That's part of our human condition. But you can affect, and you are affecting, and you will affect people, not by just what you say, but by how you live. Amen. And perhaps the greatest impact that you can have on the believers around you, baby Christians and mature Christians alike, is not 
what's coming out of your mouth, but what's coming out of your life. Lifestyle is important. And this lifestyle was something that Paul points out that the Thessalonian believers clearly saw. He says, and ye know, you know this. You've seen it. You're witnesses. And of course, God is also a witness of how we lived our lives. And you notice, you see how he described their lifestyle. He uses three adverbs, how they behaved. They behaved themselves holily or in a holy fashion. Holiness describes our conduct, specifically our conduct before God. In our relationship with God, between us and God, how do we live? Holy means pure. Holy means divine or like God. And so in our private lives, when it's when the, when, the, when the doors are closed and it's, and it's just us and God, who are we really? Are we holy? Do we live a holy life? And the way we determine whether or not something is holy is whether or not we can say, is, is this something that God would do? Is this something that God would think? Is this, is this a way that God would feel? That's holy living. It's just like God. And so holy behavior is how we conduct ourselves before God, he uses the word just. We behaved ourselves in a just way. And this just behavior describes how we conduct ourselves between, with other men. All right? And how we, how we do business with one another. How we treat one another. The word just means upright. Equitable. That which is right and proper. Literally, the meaning for the, the, the Greek word behind the word just means it's, it's straight. It's not crooked. It, it's not twisted. It's not perverted. It's straight. And you know, a lot can be learned by whether or not our behavior with each other is straight. Whether or not it is right and proper and equitable. And how we conduct ourselves in this assembly how we conduct ourselves with, with, with uh, prospective disciples, how we conduct ourselves with new believers, how, how we treat them, how we love them, how, how we interact with them, says something. It's a behavior that is caught. If you want to be a, a father involved in discipleship as God intended for all of us to be, bringing people along, encouraging people along to pursue after Christ, then we need to be mindful that our behavior, not only our behavior between us and God, but our behavior between those of us in, in this assembly, in this body, even those out in the world, our behavior speaks volumes. Amen. Our lifestyle is important. So he mentions living and behaving in a holy fashion, living and behaving in a just fashion, but then he also uses the word unblameable how unblameably we behaved ourselves. Unblameable is how we conduct ourselves both with God and man. Both are a part of this. Unblameable means free of guilt, irreproachable, blameless. It means lacking glaring errors that everyone can see. Glaring things that are, are, are obvious for all to see, and yet they just continue on. Unblameable. And I think I included this verse. Yes, I did. Acts chapter 24 and verse 16. Paul is, is giving his defense before Felix. And notice what he says. Herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. A conscience. That is unblameable. A conscience that is void of offense toward God and toward men. That's what we ought to, to strive. That's how we ought to strive to live. Our lifestyle is important. And it is a sad thing for, to see someone who perhaps what's coming out of their mouth, what they are teaching, what they are saying with their lips, uh, that which they are drawing attention to in the Scripture, they're all right things but yet their lifestyle is saying something different. And the reality is, as you watch that take, take place, is that the individual they're trying to, to, to minister to 
is not really listening to the things that they say. They are mimicking the things that they see. And we need to be aware of this in discipleship. That it is our lifestyle that preaches. Our walk that talks louder than our talk talks. And you notice this lifestyle in verse number 10 was lived among you. Not separate from you. Not aloof from you. That you live on just this separate plane. You live closed off from any, anyone else. You don't allow anybody in. Well, you're not going to really affect many people that way. Paul says, this is how I lived. And I lived it not just to myself, but I lived it among you. If we're going to affect people for Christ, we're going to have to live among them. We're going to have to be honest. You know, one of the most powerful things that you can do as someone who is discipling someone else, and and maybe that's too professional of a word, but even in fellowship, you can affect someone so much more than just sort of preaching at them if you're just honest and say, you know what, I've struggled with that too. You know what, I, I I was thinking about that too the other day, and here's how God ministered to my heart and here's how God ministered to my life here was the truth that I was missing here was the scriptural truth that that I I missed through that and and God ministered that to me that means something to live among them this is the lifestyle required for discipleship the lifestyle in order to fulfill fatherly discipleship so there's a lifestyle that's required in verse 11 He mentions a method that's utilized. He says, as you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. There's a method that's utilized. What was the method? Well, you'll notice what Paul says he did. What did he do? Well, three words again. This is the second set of three. He says, we exhorted you. The word exhorted is a very interesting word. The root word is the same word for how the Holy Spirit is described as our comforter, our, our paraclete. He's, it means, exhort means to be called to one side in order to direct, to guide, to teach, and to admonish. And I get the image, and, and uh, Paul is, is directing our minds toward this image of a son doing something in the wrong way. And it's the father who says, son, come, come over here. Come over here. And just very privately, not embarrassing him, but privately and, and uh, um, quietly just saying, all right, let me show you how, how to do this. You know, the way, that you're, the way that you just handle that situation is not how we handle situations. If that were to happen again, I want you to try. See how you know he just comes alongside. And Paul describes his teaching in that sort of way. And there is a place, very much a place, in the Lord's assembly for some, some fatherly ones, not just to, to call someone down, not just to complain about how the young Christians, they're not doing things right, they're not doing things in the way that you would approve, but in... As a father would his child to just come alongside them. Invest in a relationship with them. Get to know them. And as it is appropriate and as the relationship allows, you can say, you know, let's talk about this. And, you know, there's some, there's some concerns. You know, I had some of the same struggles and perhaps that's the most useful fatherly chat. All right. I remember struggling with my lack of coordination as a teenager. You know, I wanted to be good at sports. And my dad had to kind of say, and of course my dad, in my mind, right, he was good at everything, all right? He'd go to the church softball games and everybody's talking about what a great player he is and go out on the church soccer court and, and man, just like everyone's in awe of, of what he can do. And I'm just like, same genes here. This is not fair, you know? And he would sort of say, you know, son, I was uncoordinated when I was young as well. I'm not sure how that helped any, but, you know, I appreciated where it came from. That exhortation, that teaching, 
And Paul says, we exhorted you. We called you to our side and we directed and we taught. We admonished you. Then he says, we comforted. Comfort is a little bit different. It has the idea of encouraging, of lifting up, coming behind and giving strength. This is cheering them on. This is, uh, you know, even when there are uh, failures or when things are not what, what they ought to be, this is consoling and this is saying, all right, you, you can do this. I, I know you can. I'm here to help you. I'm here to encourage you. Let, let's do this for the Lord. Comfort. And in discipleship, there are times in which we need to sit down and teach line upon line from the Scriptures. There are also times in which we need to comfort. We need to come alongside. We need to encourage. We need to support and give strength. And then there are also, and I'll have to be honest with you, this is the one that I don't like the least, or I don't like the most. I'll get it right. I don't like this one the most. And that's charging. Charging is the idea of imploring, insisting, or warning. This is when you have to deal with an issue. This is when you have to, there's a specific thing that needs to be corrected. And there's a time and a place in all of us in our relationships to bring someone along by saying, you know what, that is not acceptable. That's not the way we do things. I'm going to insist that following Christ means this. I'm going to warn that those behaviors and uh, being involved in those things are, are not good. They're dangerous. We need to exhort. We need to comfort. We need to charge. All the while, all three of those things, because that's what they did, but then he described how they did it, and that was that phrase, as a father doth his children. We exhorted and taught as a father teaches. We comforted and encouraged as a father comforts and encourages. We charged as a father would warn and insist and implore his children. In other words, he's he's saying we did all of these things with regard to or in the context of the relationship that's shared between us. So it is the relationship that dictates how we exhort, how we comfort, and how we charge. It's the relationship that provides the, the, the connection that's needed in order to do these things. And perhaps in your life, you didn't have a godly father who in a human sense treated you in this way. And you say, you know what, I don't know if I can, I, I, don't, I don't know what this looks like. Well, you do have, you might not have that example, but you do have a example. And that is, how does your heavenly Father deal with you? How does God the Father exhort you? How does He teach you? How does He comfort and encourage you and support you? How does He charge you? And if you can, if you can identify how God deals with you, and that's how the father in the discipleship relationship ought to treat those that they're trying to minister to. And of course, in a human sense, you know, one of the things that human parents, for those of you who are, want to be godly parents, you want to disciple your children. That ought to be your goal. That ought to be something that, that, that uh, is, is very motivating to you. It's very important to you. And this is how you can deal with your children. How does God the Father deal with me? That is my pattern. That's my model. How I treat my children. So there was a method. The method was as a father treated his children, exhorting, comforting, and charging. But then there's also a message that's being delivered. What is this discipleship all about? Is it just all about relationship? Is it just all about creating a following and, and having someone who will finally listen to my pet peeves and all the things I want to tell them? No, there's a message that's here. What is the message? Well, the message is in the very next verse. That ye would walk worthy of God. The exhorting, 
the comforting, the charging was all in relation to one thing. Walk worthy of God. What, what, what should we be doing as believers? What is our modus operandi? What should we be all about? We should be all about walking worthy of God. And of course, walking, I love the idea of walking. Walking is taking repeated steps. It is in our lifestyle. What is the direction? What is the, the, the steps that we are taking all together? They indicate our direction. They indicate how we are living, how we are behaving. And we are living and behaving in a way that is worthy. And the word worthy means it's suitable. It's appropriate. It, it's in a manner consistent and consistent with what? We're walking worthy of God. We're, we're living in a way that is suitable and consistent with God Himself. And one of the things that we can do as a discipler is not necessarily to lift up ourselves as examples, but to lift up God as the example. Can I tell you tonight that other people are not the target of your Christian growth? Now, it's a good thing. We're going to talk about being imitators and being followers. It's a good thing to have other people that we can follow as they follow Christ. And it's actually needful to kind of rub off some of our rough edges. But people are not the target. Because if people are the target, we get to the place in our Christian lives where we look all around us and say, well, you know, I'm better than most people at church. You know, I, I do things better than, you know, so-and-so who sits across from me. I live a lifestyle that's better than, than this individual. People are not our target. Which means that no matter how long we've been saved, no matter how spiritual, spiritually mature we might be, there is still plenty of room for growth. There's still plenty of steps that need to be taken so that we can be more like Christ. I've heard some, some young believers say things like, well, you know, I could never be a Christian like so-and-so. Well, it's a good thing that they're not your target. That God is your target. He's the one that you're pursuing after. Walk worthy of God. And the reason why this is so important, the reason why we should walk worthy of God is because, going back to the text once again, walk worthy of God. And we do this because He's called us. He's called us unto His kingdom and glory. What should be done? We should walk in a way that is appropriate, that fits with God Himself. And why we should do it is because He has called us. And He's called us to two different things. He's called us unto His kingdom. Because we, if you're saved, if you're born again, you have a new king. And your king has delivered you, taken you out of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of this world, and you now have been born again, born into a new kingdom, and you have a new king that you belong to. If that doesn't make you and motivate you to want to live for Him, I'm not sure what will. Well, look at what God has done. Look at how He has delivered me. He's got a purpose in this. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a member of a new kingdom, and He's my new king. I want to please Him. I want to honor Him. He's called us unto His kingdom, but then he also says he's called us unto his glory. Glory is splendor. And specifically in this context, he's talking about the home of God, the heavenly home of God. The heavenly home that is promised to us as members of his kingdom. What a privilege it is to be assured of heaven as your home. You don't deserve that. I don't deserve that. The home that I deserve is the home of judgment for all of eternity separated from God. But because He has allowed me and through His power He has birthed me into His kingdom at the moment that I was saved, my eternal destiny is glory. I'm headed to glory. And I might as well get used to living in my new home because this is walking worthy of God. This is how things are done 
in glory. That's where we're headed. And that's why we should walk worthy. As a discipler, we want to never forget that truth. And as someone who is learning, we ought never to forget that truth. And we walk worthy of God because He has called you. And so there's some particulars here of discipleship. There's a lifestyle we need to live. There's some things that that we need to do in relationship. And there's a message that we need to deliver. Walk worthy of God. But then in verse 13 through 16, Paul lays out some responses to discipleship. And there are two responses that are, he points out in this text. One response, he points out, brings him endless thanksgiving and praise to God. And there's another response that's caused Paul great hassle and great heartache. He deals with the positive response first, so we'll deal with it first. In verse 13, he says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because... When you received the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. There's a positive response in the fact that they received the word that Paul gave to them. And you know, I've mentioned that word receive. I love that word. And it's the word, it's described, you know, it's defined as you throwing open your arms and welcoming something. It's waiting for that important guest that has promised to come, and you can't wait for them to come. And you're just watching. When are they going to get here? And when they arrive, you receive them as the honored guest. That's how these people responded to the word and discipleship that Paul was teaching them. Their arms were wide open. They were saying, give us more. We, we want more. And boy, what an encouraging thing it is as a pastor to have individuals and people, as a discipler, to have people who are just, give, give me more, I want more, I'm loving this, you know, provide some more. And that's encouraging. That was their response. And he kind of uh, delves into a little bit their response. And then kind of three steps that you see here. He says, in, uh, we're in verse 13. He says, when you receive the word of God, which ye heard of us. Of course, step one, we've got to hear. We've got to be opening our ears and allowing the word of God to flow in. Desiring to hear from God. Step one is hearing. Step two is esteeming or valuing. And this is what he means when he says, when you received the truth as revealed to us, You received it, you valued it, you esteemed it as the very word of God. And then he makes sure to include which it is. Which it is. It's very interesting to look at the New Testament. The New Testament is not just a bunch of letters and and epistles from Paul writing to those that he cared about, although that's part of it. But it is the word of God. And as Paul preached and Paul gave his message and Paul pointed to the Scriptures, they received it as the Word of God. They esteemed it as such. They received the presentation of the Scriptures as literally the breath of God, as it is in truth. So they esteemed. And then step three, so we hear, we esteem. Step three is we... Now sit back and watch the results. Because notice what he says. The word of God, when it is heard, when it is esteemed, when it is received, it effectually worketh also in you that believe. Effectually working. That word effectually is the Greek word energio. Energy. All right? It brings energy. It's powerful It's effective. It makes a difference. And if you are a believer here tonight, you know that when you open your ears to the Word of God and you receive it as God's Word, it's alive. It's powerful. It's effective. It does something in you. Just sit back and watch the results. It's effective. But it's only effective for them that believe. Because for some, and unfortunately you've probably seen some, 
or maybe you've experienced this as, as I probably have in my life, for some, the Word of God has limited effect. It has little effect. And the reason for that is it's not received by those that believed. The natural man receiveth not the things that be of God because they're spiritual. It kind of just goes right over their head. And for the believer who is engaged in receiving, man, the Word of God is just, it's energetic in their life and it's powerful in their life and perhaps the person sitting next to them, it's just like, I don't get any of this. Well, the difference is that belief because it, the Word of God effectually worketh in those that believe. And you see that truth there in verse 13. So this response started with the, the Word of God being received. And boy, that's exciting. And then he moves on in verse 14. And the Word of God was being followed. Followers now. And not, not specifically the Word of God. I misspoke there. And it's actually what they were following was they were following good and right examples. Because in verse 14, he says, you became followers or you became imitators. And that's literally what that word means. You became imitators of those first churches. And he goes back to the church in Jerusalem. The churches that were planted in in the, the very first part of the book of Acts because of the work of God that was done there. And these Thessalonian believers, they followed in the footsteps of those churches that came before. They became their brethren. And he points that out in verse 14, for ye brethren. They became their brethren, and they strive to form a church in Christ Jesus, just like those churches back in Jerusalem and Judea. And one of the marks of a true believer is to desire and to follow, to find and follow true men of God. And for this church, their desire was to find and follow other true churches. Now that following was in a very specific way. And perhaps this is appropriate because we've talked a lot about it today in various ways. Not only did they receive and follow, but they also suffered. And specifically, that's how he's pointing out that they followed. He says, you became followers of the churches of God, which which in Judea are in Christ Jesus, for ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. They suffered. And perhaps some of the greatest suffering, the most hurtful suffering that we face in following after Christ is the suffering that comes at the hands of our own countrymen, of our own family of those that are close to us, of those who knew us before Christ and they don't understand the change that's taken place. They don't understand that we've chosen the path, we've chosen Christ, and as a result of choosing Christ, our life is now changed. It's different. And they think, you know, they've gotten involved in some sort of cult, in some, some sort of group of wackos and weirdos. Or in some cases in the world, involved in a group of infidels. And of course, that needs to be dealt with in that context. And so the suffering comes at the hands of our very own countrymen, those who are near to us. Notice what Jesus said. I want you to go ahead and flip there. I know this is a familiar passage, but the book of John. Notice what Jesus says to his disciples. When he deals with this very same topic of of suffering, John chapter 15, notice how he, the Lord Jesus Christ, prepares his disciples. John chapter 15, there's more verses that we could read. We're just going to focus there in verse 18, 19, and 20. Jesus says, If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they persecute me, 
they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. You know, as believers, it's helpful to remember how the world treated our Savior. And as His servants, we are no greater and definitely no better than our Lord and our Savior. And really, our anticipation, our expectation of how the world treats us ought to be the same. That they are going to treat us in the same way. Now, I'm glad we live in a, in a country, in a location where, thankfully, that doesn't happen all the time. But our response to that should not be expectation. Our response to, to that should be, thank you, Lord, because the expectation is that there's persecution. The expectation is that there's a measure of detest, of hatred, in the same way that they treated the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul put it in this way in the book of Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29. He says, For unto you it is given. It's given. It's a gift from God. What is the gift? In behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but to also suffer for His sake. Really, this ought to be our expectation. Instead, when it's not our expectation, and we get even the slightest, the slightest breeze of resistance, now we're all upset. Somebody was, was rude to me at the door when all I was trying to do was offer him a track. Somebody cracked a joke about, you know, those fundamentalist Christians. And we get all upset and bent out of shape instead of, you know what, this is part of the gig. This is part of living for Christ. They're treating me like they treated my Savior. Now, I ought to be very careful because they didn't treat my Savior that way because he was obnoxious. They didn't treat Jesus that way because he was a jerk. They didn't treat Jesus that way because he mistreated people. So let's not hide behind the negative uh, of display of our own flesh. All right? Let's make sure that they're truly hating us for righteousness' sake and not for our own sake. But we ought to expect that there's a measure of resistance. There's a measure of um, people not necessarily opening their arms and understanding everything that we're about and everything that we're doing. So the positive response was that they received and they followed and they suffered. But then Paul takes three verses, actually, to draw attention to the negative response. And this one's harder to stomach sometimes. That people would respond negatively to the truth of the gospel being presented to them. But yet it is a a reality. You know, we're excited and we're encouraged to see how the Thessalonian believers respond. We're excited and we're encouraged as we're trying to invest and give the truth to others and disciple others. We're encouraged to see people not only respond to the gospel, but then to respond to the truth of God in that sort of way. It it kind of gives a spring in our step. But just remember, that's not a guarantee of how people are going to respond. For Paul, he wanted nothing more Nothing more than the salvation of his own people. Romans 9 and 10 is all about that. We could read those full two chapters to get his heart. I think Romans 10.1 describes it the best where he talks about his desire and his prayer to God for Israel was that they might be saved. Romans 9 talks about how he wished himself to be accursed for his brethren. If he could give up his own salvation so he could give it to them, There was a willingness to do so. That's how he felt. And so it pained him in a great way to point out the negative response. Verse 15, he points out the fact that they responded by a desire to kill and to persecute. Who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. Jesus pointed this out in Matthew 23. When... He spoke of Jerusalem. He talked about how they killed the prophets and stoned them which were sent 
All the while, he wanted to gather them in the loving and tender way. He wanted to minister to them. But they didn't want the message. And the easiest way to get rid of the message was to get rid of the messenger. And that's exactly what the, the, the hierarchy of the Jewish religion was trying to do. They didn't want the message. They didn't want the messenger. And so however convenient way they could find to get rid of them, if that means killing in the sake of Jesus, they were willing to do so. If that means running them off, persecuting them so that they would, they would have to go somewhere else, they were willing to do that as well. And there are some people who when we try to give the truth, we try to present the gospel, they don't want the message and they don't want the messenger. Sometimes that happens. At the end of verse 15, it says that they please not God and are contrary to all men. They displease God and oppose men. Now, this is a rather surprising thought when you think about it this way. The Jews had a zeal for God. They had a form of godliness. They had a form of religion in how they lived. They were all about doing those things to please God. But because they rejected Jesus, they displeased God. You cannot, please, Jesus, you cannot please, please God without receiving Jesus. You sit here today and you have the purpose, the, 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 uh, uh, the exterior, you got the perfect Baptist lifestyle. And you think you're doing pretty good. But if you haven't responded to the gospel, if you haven't obeyed the gospel, then you are not pleasing God. You are displeasing Him. And that's what these Jews were doing. And then on top of that, they were not only displeasing God, but they were contrary to all men. Now the Jews in Thessalonica, remember, they ran Paul out of town by making up that lie that, that Paul and the Christians were contrary to the Romans when they were the ones who were actually contrary to the people. They were accusing them of something they were guilty of. And they hated those, they hated those that received the message of Christ which is a stark contrast to true Christianity because we ought not to hate those who reject the message. One of the marks of our Christianity ought to be to love those, and yes, even those who reject the message. Then in verse 16 it says, They forbid us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins all way, for wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. They forbid and they condemn. If you look at Paul's defense of himself before the people in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 22, he's talking about what God said to him. God said unto me, depart for I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. And it was that point. That point. They were listening to him unto that word. Until he got to that point, until he got to the Gentiles actually pleasing God, they lifted up their voices and said, Away with such fellow from the earth. It's not fit that he should live. They refused the message for themselves, and they didn't want anyone else to believe it either. And as a result, they brought upon themselves condemnation from God. That's the idea. They fill up their sins always. Now, I think we see there that at the moment, that condemnation had not yet come. It's an evidence of God's long-suffering. However, the direction they were headed, sure judgment was in the future. Wrath was come upon them. Now, the execution was still pending, but it was coming if they refused to change their ways. And there are going to be people who we try to minister to, who we try to evangelize, who we try to give the gospel to, who will have the exact same response. It ought not to throw us off. It ought not, not to send us in a loop. It ought not to discourage us. This is the expectation. This is the reality. So we've seen some particulars about discipleship. The responses to discipleship. And one more. We're going to end on an encouraging note tonight. And that is the product. The product of discipleship. And there are two products. And wonderful products they are that are dealt with in verse 17. There is the product of relationship and the product of reward. The product of relationship can be seen in verse 17. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time, in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. 
Paul says, you are our brethren. He didn't know them for that long. At most, a couple of months. But there was a connection there. Why? Because he as a father was investing in them and they as children were following after him. You notice the phrases that he uses in verse 17 of being taken from them. And specifically that word taken means to bereave of parents or parent. It's the idea of causing a young child to be orphaned. Imagine the picture of a child being ripped from the arms of their loving parents and the pain that's there from that separation. That's, that's, the, that's the description that Paul is using. We're, we've been taken from you. However, our heart's not been taken from you. Our heart's still there. Yes, bodily presence, we can't be there. We've been, that's been ripped away, but our heart's still there. We've not been taken from you in heart. And as a result, we've endeavored abundantly. And that has the idea of making haste and giving diligence and giving attention. We're endeavoring abundantly with great desire. He uses that phrase at the end of the verse. And with great desire has the idea of craving. Paul craved their fellowship. Paul craved to be in, in relationship with them once again, face to face. He wanted it. He desired it. And he says there, I want to see your face. I want to be there with you. That brings up an important point. That discipleship requires face-to-face relationship. There There was something that was inhibited because he couldn't be there. There's the same thought in the book of Romans where Paul talks about how I want to come and see you so that I can impart a spiritual gift to you. Separated without that communication, without face-to-face interaction, I I can't minister like I need to. And if we're going to be a father, if we're going to be a discipler, we need that face-to-face relationship. We need to be there. We need to spend time. And when we do that, one of the products that comes from it is relationship. Paul yearned to be with them. In other words... Paul's heart was in their assembly. Can I ask you tonight, does your heart yearn for the assembly? I don't mean this in an unkind way at all, but perhaps it doesn't yearn for the assembly because you're not really investing in anyone. You say, well, I would want to be at church more if more people reached out to me, if more people loved me. If more people would be concerned about what's going on in my life, oh, that, you have things reversed. That's not how it works. Amen. The connection comes. You notice who's expressing this. Paul's expressing this. The father, the discipler. The connection comes when we invest in other people and perhaps your heart would be here more if you were investing in some other people. We see Paul's desire here. To be in the assembly, to be with them, to minister to to them some more. And we also see Satan's hindrance. He says, even I, Paul, you think about Paul's an important person. Certainly he could deputize this to someone else because it's not all that important. No, he says, even I, Paul, I desire to be with you. Verse 18, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. Satan knew the importance of fellowship. He knew the importance of discipleship. And he was doing everything in his power to prevent it. Ooh, isn't that a powerful truth? The devil knows how powerful discipleship is. He knows how powerful fellowship is. And he will do everything in his power to separate you from that fellowship. He will do everything in his power to prevent you from being in church. He will do everything, and you think about those you're trying to invest in, He will do everything in His power to drive a wedge between them and the the body that they need to be a part of. He's on the warpath. And He wants to separate them off. And we ought to be awake, alert, at those who are not in the assembly and say, Satan's at work there. I need to invest there. I'm concerned about them. 
Because we have an enemy and this is how he works. And we ought to be careful in our own lives as well because those whispers of they don't, not enough people care, not enough people invest, they're all about what they can get. That's Satan. He's hindering. And he hinders once and again. Did you see that? He doesn't give up. He just keeps hindering because he knows how important and how powerful this is. First product is relationship. One more and we'll be done. I'll go quickly, I promise. The reward. What is the reward? Verse 19. What is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Well, those are the rewards right there. When we're involved in discipleship, it brings hope. Hope in the Bible is an expectation of something that is good. Jesus promised that in Matthew 6 and verse 20 that when we uh, lay up for ourselves treasure in heaven, it won't corrupt. Moth or rust won't corrupt it. Thieves won't break through and steal it. We have an expectation of a reward. We have an expectation of good. That when we involve ourselves in what God wants us to do, there's a reward not only in heaven, but I believe there's also a reward here on earth that we get to experience. And it's that hope that keeps us going. That's, the, that's a reward of discipleship. And if you're involved in that or you have been involved in that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's hope, the expectation of good. There's also joy or exaltation. This is like the parent who exalts them, themselves in the accomplishment of their children. It's being there to see them conquer the greatest heights in their life and what that feels like. That's the joy that's being described here. And then he describes it as a crown. And specifically, it's the crown of rejoicing. The victor's trophy. Like the the famed athlete, the the MVP quarterback who hoists the Vince Lombardi trophy. And that image and all that it invokes. He says, you are our trophy. You are that which we are living for. You are our pride and joy. He uses the word glory as well. In verse 20, for ye are our glory and joy. You are our pride and joy. Even on this earth, there is a small taste of this. But the full culmination will be in the presence of the Lord at His coming, as Paul points out. We're going to see those. And all of the hidden investments that we've made, that no one else has seen, all of those will be visible. All of those will be out in the open. And there will be a reward if we're involved in this task of evangelism and discipleship. Both of those things. And as believers, as members of Lehigh Valley Baptist Church, it is God's will for all of us to be involved in this. To be involved in the discipleship process, both as a teacher and as a student. We say, Pastor Gable, I've only been saved, you know, a short time. Doesn't matter. Have you learned anything? Has God taught you anything? Then you have a responsibility to be taking what God has taught you and to be giving it to someone else. And you say, well, I've been saved a really long time. I know a lot. And maybe you do know a lot. But what is, what is the goal? It's not other people. It's God. You still, I've still got a long way to go. And I can learn. Do you know that you as a seasoned believer can learn an awful lot from a baby Christian. It's kind of humbling, but it's true. In fact, we probably need that relationship more than we know. We can learn from each other. So it is God's will for us to be involved as a teacher and as a student. So evaluate that in in your heart and life tonight. Am I involved in both of those ways? Am I allowing myself to be taught? Am I allowing myself to be challenged? Or am I always trying to be the teacher. Always the one who's telling everyone else this is how things are instead of being taught myself. And then on the other side, are you endeavoring to invest in others? 
both are necessary. We should be both followers and fathers. Are you a follower? Are you a father? That's God's will for you and your life. And what a, what a testimony and a template that's really laid out for us in how Paul invested himself into these believers.